are listening to Shining Star Community Church English Ministry Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. This portion of Galatians just might be one of the most practical passages you could ever come across. It's deeply challenging, not just because of the truth behind it, but because of the call to put it into practice in our lives. You've heard that, right? Walk to walk and talk to talk. Isn't it hard to walk to walk? It's incredibly hard to walk to walk. For seminarians, our, our professors always will start off in the class saying, you got to practice what you preach, right? It's, it's true for everyone. So in Galatians, it's no different. We're called to put into practice in our lives. It's completely practical. And Tim Keller, he says, regarding this passage, there's no better passage in the Bible to teach you how to deeply and permanently change. Isn't that crazy? So I have two truths to point out today, and I have a lot of mini-truths. The first is that our flesh competes with the Spirit. Turn to your neighbor and say, our flesh competes with the Spirit. Now, we're all familiar with competition. Some of you guys are overly competitive. Right? It's a struggle. It's everywhere. Um, when I went to Jacob and Kaylee's birthday party yesterday, there was a little basketball game going on, and they were just super competitive, scoring points against one another. Then on the other half of the court, there was a little group of kids, and they found a caterpillar. And they all just circled around the caterpillar. And the poor caterpillar, he just wanted to get across the court and then gestate and become a butterfly or whatever. But the kids kept putting sticks in front of it. Then they drew circles around it with the chalk so they could see how far the caterpillar could drag the chalk dust. <laughs> yeah, they figured that out. Isn't that crazy? Meanwhile, I'm holding my daughter back from wanting to step on it. Life's not easy, right? The caterpillar is struggling. Or perhaps you face competition in the workplace. There's promotion. There's gossip or the word of promotion going around, and it's between you and some other person. They work 45 hours, so you, you push 50. They do 55, you do 60. They come in early, you come in earlier. You do all these things. You try to get as many clients to have as many billables and all these things. It just keeps going. It's fierce, the competition. But not only that, there are sometimes struggles in terms of life and death. We know that there are people who are fighting diseases, fighting sickness, plagues, whatever you want to call it, all around the world. Even here, right outside, we know also that people's lives are being threatened. We have the radical Islamic group ISIS. They continue to pursue those people they consider infidels. But in our text here, we learn of a conflict that's different. We learn of a conflict that's even greater. It's on, a, on an eternal scale, and it's far more important than any competition that you and I have ever faced. It's the battle between flesh and spirit. It's a battle between flesh and God's spirit. So let's take a look at the two sides of this battle. First, we have the spirit. And the spirit that's mentioned here is the Holy Spirit of God. This is the spirit that Jesus promised us after his death, resurrection, and ascension to the Father. That he will pour out his spirit on his disciples. And on the day of Pentecost, that promise became a reality. To those who believed in Jesus, they received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And to the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit who now gives us the same eternal resurrection life of Jesus. From death to life, from light to darkness. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's who he is. And so now we read in verses 22, 23, the description of the Holy Spirit. Or what he produces in the believer. The fruit of the Holy Spirit. In other words, what the Holy Spirit produces in your life, in my life. And so what are they? 
It's love. Love that's sacrificial and gives oneself away. There's joy, which is delighting in the Lord for who he is. There's peace, which is resting and trusting in God's wisdom and grace. There's patience, which is forgiving and continues to hope in him. There's kindness that, le- that delights to see that other people are doing well. There's goodness, which is sincere and is true. It's not prideful. It's not hypocritical. There's faithfulness, which is always dependable and wholehearted. There's gentleness, which is humble, and where it's not thinking less of yourself, but having yourself, or but thinking yourself less. You see, the last one is self-control. It's doing what is right, not what is convenient. You've heard of these through the Spirit, and there's so much more to it than what I've just said. There's so much more. But it should be every believer's desire to have the fruit of the Holy Spirit produced in us. Don't you want to be controlled by the Spirit? Don't you want to produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Amen? So think about what I just said. Where are you deficient? What part of the multifaceted fruit of the Holy Spirit are you deficient? Are you lacking in? Now these are all things that we need to be matured in in us and we will grow in our faith hopefully. But just because you're great at maybe kindness and maybe at joyfulness and you're lacking in other areas doesn't mean that you should ignore those areas. What are we called to do now? Let's, how many people here are not patient? <laughs> I think a lot of us, right? We all struggle with that. We all struggle with that. We need to start praying. We say, God, if you have given us the Holy Spirit, that means you have given us every aspect of the Holy Spirit, right? That means the certain parts that we are lacking, that we're deficient in, God, whatever it is, whatever is blocking me from from realizing and and producing that, God, I pray that you would make it known to me. I want the fullness of the Holy Spirit in my life. Amen? The fullness. I don't want just one, two aspects. I want the whole thing. God, I want the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Turn to your neighbor and say, do you want the fullness of the Spirit? So that's the Spirit. Now we have the other side, the flesh, which is a little bit harder to define. The word flesh in Scripture had many meanings. Sometimes it means literal flesh, like muscle tissue. Sometimes it also means physical body. And sometimes it means humanity in general, like in flesh or all flesh, or in somehow in the way that which we live in the flesh. In all those cases, flesh is simply a part of God's creation, and there's nothing actually bad about it. There's nothing actually evil implied by the word. However, there's another definition of flesh. And this flesh suggests an earthly kind of natural passing reality from where people, from where you and I, we think that we can derive ultimate meaning and purpose in life from these fleshly, earthly things. That we think this flesh is thinking that somehow anything in this world can give us true purpose. That anything in this world can give us true life. That anything in this world is the true source of life. That is wrong. That is the mistake that we make. Let me explain. Whenever you think of man, you think of two natures, spirit and flesh. And we always just kind of break it apart as two natures. The flesh and we have the spirit. The spirit which is higher and it is obviously spiritual state. 
and then we have the flesh, which is lower, which is the fleshly side, which tries to take control of our lives. But more than the two natures that are simply two components, it's not just two things here. Instead, we need to look at these two as realities on which people base their existence. You're either living by the Spirit or you're living by the flesh. You're either basing your existence on the Spirit, in the Spirit, or in the flesh. Do you understand that? It's more than just this is who you are. This is what you're doing. This is how you're living now. You either live by the Spirit and for the purposes of the Spirit or you live by the flesh and for the purposes of the flesh. When we live according to the flesh or according to the spirit, it means we're either focusing on one that leads to death or we're focusing on the one that leads to life and peace. So I want you guys to follow along here, folks. Material things, earthly things, they're not inherently evil. It's not inherently bad. Human feelings, physical desires, sensual pleasures, they aren't things that should be avoided or suppressed. The reason why we've come to understand the flesh is so destructive is that the flesh becomes the norm by which you live your lives. The flesh becomes your end-all, be-all in your lives. The flesh becomes your foundation. The flesh becomes your cross. The flesh becomes your God, you see? That's how we start living. In other words, this world, the measure of success, reward for hard work, even the perversion of pleasures, it becomes our interest, our only interest. The things of the world becomes our only passion. And what happens is that the things of God end up getting removed from our lives. You see, the presence of the Holy Spirit becomes, gets removed from our lives the life that is to come, the hope of glory and what God has promised, all that gets removed from our lives. The sensitivity to the Holy Spirit it gets removed from our lives. All these things become closed to us because we no longer live for it. We no longer pursue the Spirit. Instead, we only pursue the flesh. We only pursue the flesh. We only pursue the things that the world has to offer. And we think that what the world has to offer is our ultimate purpose. You know, whenever I talk to single people and they're really eager to get married, the first question I always ask is, how are you doing when your marriage is Christ? Oh, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. It's good. But I really want to get married, Pastor. I really want to get married to, to that woman, to that man. I really want to get married. I said, well, that, that, that's fine and all, and, and, and it will happen. But how are you with your marriage with Christ? Oh, well, you know, how are you? Are you in the Word? Well, not really. Are you praying? Well, not really. Your attendance isn't all that great in church. Well, I know. It's not, it's not all that great. What happened right there? What's happened right then is, there, is this, is that they're taking, they're placing greater priority in the things of the world, that is, physical marriage, than their spiritual union with Christ. Does that make sense? It's the flesh and spirit all over again. And that's what makes the flesh so destructive. It becomes so consuming. You forget that there's a life in the spirit to be lived. We're only living for this world, that's, and that's just terrible. You know, one thing I really appreciate about going to uh, YWAM, DTS, uh, Disciples Training School in, in, in uh, Hawaii, was that every single day, 
the school really focused on just your spiritual life. Everything, everything about it was just your spiritual life. And it was great because every single day we would go and we would communicate with people and talk. And it was never about like, what do you do for a living? It was never about where do you come from? It's always about taking a second and just praying and closing your eyes and saying, Holy Spirit, talk to me. Speak to me about how I should speak to that individual across the street. And the Holy Spirit will speak to you. It will give you some image. It will do something. And you go to that person. I remember this one time, a friend of mine, he and his uh, he and his group, they went to China. And as they were walking in this one, like, area, all of a sudden they, they took a moment to intercede and pray. And as they prayed, um, the image that he got was a black cat. Okay, a black cat. And then, I forget what the second image was. It was a black cat. It was a big thing. And so he, he said to his, his group and his staff leaders, I, 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 I thought of a, or Lori really put a black cat in my mind for some reason. They're like, okay, we'll keep that in mind. <laughs> right? So as they, kind of, as they just kind of walked, all of a sudden they're saying, God, like, who do you want us to share the gospel to? Who, who do you want us to go forth and really just preach the word? And as they're walking, there's this one restaurant. It was completely empty. There was no one else there except for this one man. He seemed to be the owner, perhaps. And there he was, this elderly man, and he was wearing this beater, and he was like, wearing his like, underwear pretty much. He's just totally relaxed. He doesn't care. This is his home, right? He's just sitting there, and he had this newspaper, and there was this Chinese writing on the other side was a picture of one black cat. That's it. This is a picture of a black cat in the newspaper. And so they go, maybe, I'm not a genius, but maybe God is directing us towards him. So they go, they're all 12, and they surround him. He's like, what in the world is going on? And then so they had a translator. They shared the gospel, and that man who was an atheist for his entire life came to know the Lord Jesus. It's like we forget that there's a spiritual life that we're, to be, we're called to be involved in. We forget, and we, all we do is just live for the flesh. And anytime you live for the flesh and by the flesh, there's fear. If you live by the flesh, do you think you would go and evangelize to someone? Absolutely not. You'd fear. You'd, you'd have the fear of rejection, of being ridiculed. And the flesh is destructive in that sense. It, 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 it gives you short-sightedness. It limits your periphery. You, you don't see what God is trying to do in you. So what does living only by the flesh look like, and how do you know if we're only living by the flesh? If you only depend on what you can understand and control, you're living by the flesh. If you're driven by what you see and the desires you feel, you're living by the flesh. If you're confident in your own wisdom, in your own power and influence, you're living by the flesh. If you're focused only on yourself in this present time, if you, even if you pursue spiritual things, you're living by the flesh. If you don't feel the need uh, for prayer or to know truth found in Scripture, you're living by the flesh. If you trust in your own understanding with all your heart and soul and mind instead of understanding God, you're living by the flesh. If your sole rationale for decision-making is how you'll benefit from it rather than the glory of God, you're living by the flesh. How are you living today? Are you living in the Spirit or are you living in the flesh? So here in verses 19-21, Apostle Paul, he lists the works of the flesh, the results of what happens when we live by the flesh, okay? Because you don't just, it's not just living by the flesh, but it actually produces something. It produces darkness. It produces greater brokenness in your lives. And so he mentions four things. And the first is this, sexual sins. 
This is what living the flesh produces. The first thing, sexual sins. Things like sexual morality, impurity, and sensuality. In other words, these were things that were common in the Greco-Roman world and in our day as well. I remember Billy Graham even saying that America is no different from Sodom and Gomorrah. There are websites that promote adultery. You know that, right? That big leak with the Ashley Madison thing. Pornography, which was once and still in many ways widely accepted as the norm of our culture, has now scientifically been proven to create social and family dysfunction. Duh. Like, they just got it. You know? The second thing Paul addresses is the sin that, of being associated with false religion. And he says, idolatry and sorcery or witchcraft. Just as it was prevalent in the biblical times, even today there are accounts of tribes, cultures, and nations that practice sorcery. Now, why did the Bible condemn it? Isn't it just a bunch of Harry Potter stuff? No biggie? No, because through it, so many people submit to the power of darkness and Satan rather than God. In 2 Chronicles, we're told of King Manasseh, who was condemned because he practiced sorcery, which included in burning his own children as sacrifices. And he would, he would use fortune-telling, he would use horoscopes, he would use omens and necromancers. Now, I remember uh, looking at the Chinese zodiac. As young as I was, I, I would always go to Peking Duck. And you would have this fabulous, uh, what is it, placemat of the Chinese zodiac, right? I'm a dog. I'm not saying like I'm a dog, like I'm hip. Like I'm, I'm, I'm according to zodiac, a dog, one that barks. And it said that I should marry someone who's a rabbit. But I ended up marrying someone who's a rat. Am I now destined for marital failure? And we follow along with these stupid things and say, oh, it's just for laughs, it's no biggie. But how many people do you know who follow the horoscopes religiously? I'm sorry, I'm a Capricorn. You say you're what? A Pisces? Get away from me. Right? We say that. We go, oh, great, today, according to my Capricorn thing, I'm supposed to have a great, fantastic day, so nothing can just ruin my life right now. We say all these ridiculous things. And before the Koreans start laughing, just know that in the Korean culture, there used to be a trend of the blood type thing. Where, where women and men, typically women, because men are more desperate, they don't care who they date. <laughs> women would say, you're not an O type? You're not an O negative, positive, A, B, whatever type? How, you know what? Get away from me. They, in fact, made a movie called like My B Blood Type Boyfriend. It's a fantastic title and even greater movie, Right? It's ridiculous, but people will say that. They will dismiss you because they believe that if you don't have a compatible blood type, that you're not worth talking to. You're not even worth dating. Paul's saying this, don't let these foolish, worldly superstitions and spiritualities define your life and future. Don't submit. Don't even give it a second. The third sin Paul addresses is the sin of conflicts, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. These conflicts have one purpose, and that is to destroy. 
And it does by creating disunity, chaos, distrust, and more. And sadly, these things are common in churches as well as in the rest of the world. And yet we continue to allow these sins to take root in our lives rather than repent of it and seek accountability and healing. How many times have we all as church members, as so-called family of God, the body of Christ, allowed these sins, these conflicts to get rooted in our lives to the point where it would just totally break apart and separate relationships. How many times have you, have you just stewed in your anger or bitterness? Does time help? No. You'll still hate that person. You just maybe tricked yourself into thinking that you're at a better place now, but you're still not healed, and, and it will eventually influence all your future relationships. Lastly, Paul addresses the sin of substance abuse. This is another result of sin, of living by the flesh. He says drunkenness and orgies. This is not sexual orgies, but parties that include intoxication. Look, these these verses makes it pretty clear as to what constitutes as a sin. If you've ever wanted a black and white description of what a Christian can and can't do or what it means to be a believer and unbeliever, here it is. Because verses 19-21 describes the life of an unbeliever. So let me ask you this, after hearing, after hearing all this, what's your response? What's your natural impulse? In your mind, in your heart, are you thinking, why can't I do those things? Perhaps right now you're already thinking of ways to justify it. Why well, I got to go with my company to have, a, to have a happy hour. But when we talk about the things of the Spirit, what's our reaction? We try to make all sorts of justifications against doing it. We say, oh, well, it's just too, it's too demanding. It's too this or that. That's the great conflict. We want to do the things of the world, and we don't want to do the things of the Spirit. But here's the fact. We can't just do what we please. That is what you naturally desire because it comes from a point of darkness. What you just want to do, don't do it. Why? Because it's coming from a place of fallenness. And so ultimately, it will not be the best course of action for us in our lives. Why? Because flesh is broken, so therefore following the flesh will only lead to further brokenness. And that's what verse 17 says, that even when you desire to do what's right, you will not be successful because when your efforts are forced on your confidence in your flesh, you're only going to produce the same you're not going to produce the same desirable fruit that the Holy Spirit produces. That's why Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 7, For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He's saying it's the sin, you see. That's where it's coming from, and that's what's producing. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh, for I have the desire, I want to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I, do not, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. You see, where, where is it? What happens when you follow your flesh? Where is that desire coming from? It's coming from the innermost parts of your flesh, that is sin. It's darkness. That's why the commentary author, John Stott, said, this is what defines the Christian conflict, fierce, bitter, and unremitting. Moreover, it is a conflict in which by himself, the Christian simply cannot be victorious. He's saying, you cannot overcome this on your own. You cannot do this on your own. If you can't win this struggle, if you can't win this battle, then what do we do? 
And the answer to that goes to our second point. We must walk in the Spirit, and only then will you not gratify the flesh. You can't have both, people. You either gratify the flesh and you reject the Spirit, or you gratify the Spirit and you reject the flesh. In a span of nearly one year, I've had two uncles pass away due to cancer. The thing about cancer is that even if the doctor tells you there's a cure, which would make anyone happy and ecstatic, yes, a cure, you'll soon realize that the cure might actually kill you. So in verse 16, we're told that the hope that God gives you, which is walking in the Spirit, and we will not gratify the flesh, he's saying at the end of this passage, verse 24, 25, he unpacks what verse 16 is saying. He's saying there's two treatments to that, you see. If you want to walk by the Spirit, there's two treatments. First treatment is kind of a, a negative-sounding one. It says we must crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. Turn to your neighbor and say, crucify the flesh. You got to crucify the flesh. Crucify your passions. Crucify your desires. That's what I was saying before. The cure might kill you. Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ. Then in verse 24, we have crucified the flesh with passions and desires, which means that if you belong to Christ, this crucifying our flesh, it becomes a deliberate act upon our flesh. In other words, you crucifying your flesh, your passions and your desires, it must be an intentional, daily, active crucifixion of it. Does that make sense? When we say take up the cross, or this is the cross we must bear, you see, it was a clear depiction of self-denial. It's like every follower of Christ who knows they're condemned criminals are carrying the cross to the place of execution. So this is you. Imagine this. You know you're guilty. You know that you have sins in your life. You know that you're making mistakes. You know that you're struggling and you're burdened with whatever it might be, that you're, whatever, whatever sin it is in your life. And so you see that, and you're carrying the weight of the cross, and you're carrying it to the place of execution. So you not only take up the cross, you not only walk with the cross, you actually see the execution take place by taking your sins and nailing it to the cross, metaphorically speaking. And this is the graphic description of repentance. This is what Jesus actually did for you and I. This is what it means to repent, to take the cross, walk with the cross, see that the execution goes through, and turning away from your old life of sin. Every sin that you're dealing with is something that you have to nail up to the cross. But do you know why we fall into sin and don't nail it up like we should? Because we've been deceived into thinking that the sin will make us feel better or happier. We actually believe that. That's the power of temptation. It's the prospect that it will make us happier, and so we struggle with releasing it. We struggle with crucifying because I don't want to. It's been good to me. I feel good. It, it, it makes me happy. I get to forget about the current struggles for just a moment. We think there's nothing better than the feeling of wealth and security, the feeling of being better than other people, the feeling of lust and sex and all the things that come with it. You see, this battle isn't just a battle of spirit and flesh. It's a battle of faith. But like the saying we've heard before, it's not your faith, but the object of your faith that matters. So what is the object of your faith? Is it God or is the object of your faith in the world? 
What do you trust to give you greater peace, satisfaction, joy? What are you thinking in your mind that every single day as you work and you strive to survive in this world, you say, if I, could, if I could just have this, if I could just attain that, if I could just earn this or accomplish this, then my life will be better. Because every time you say anything in this world, if I just get it, if I just have it, it will make me better. I will be happier. You are then gratifying the flesh. Romans 8.13 says, if you kill it by the Spirit, you will live. What do you do with your flesh? You kill it with the Spirit. What does that mean? I like what John Piper says. He says, out of all the armor that God gives us to fight Satan, only one piece is used for killing, the sword. And according to Ephesians 6.17, he continues, he says, it's called the sword of the Spirit. How, how awesome is that? So when Paul in Romans says, kill sin by the Spirit, he's telling us to depend on the Spirit, namely the Word of God. Your sword is the Spirit, and the Spirit is the Word of God. How are you doing with your sword? How are you doing with the Word of God? Are you doing everything you can to immerse yourself in it, or is it still part of your New Year's resolution of 2016? You're fighting a battle when your sword is still in its sheath. It's time to take it out and fight it and use it to fight. The second treatment is mentioned in verse 25. We must keep in step with the Spirit. It's a military term that Paul uses. It means staying within formation, okay? The reason we get, why we get out formation is because we don't trust our leader. We don't trust our leader. Is that me? We second guess what he's doing, so we get out of step and out of formation. If you believe that the Spirit of God gives us eternal life, if you believe that he speaks to us in his word, if you believe that he's spoken to you before in supernatural ways where you've spiritually encountered him before, if you believe that he is God and that he is love and that he is faithful and that he is good and that he is sovereign, that you must also believe that when he says for us to walk with him in step and to avoid the pitfalls of sins listed in this passage, no matter how attractive it might be, no matter how socially acceptable it might be, we must, we must believe that he meant it for our own good. If you can believe everything else about God, and yet it's here that we say, well, God, I don't know. I, I kind of reject you here. That doesn't make any sense. How do we trust in, trust in him, though? You know, um, I'm a steak aficionado. I'm not saying I know a lot about steaks. I just know I like eating them. So I guess, in a way, I'm an ice cream aficionado, too, then. That's why uh, the last time I spoke with my brother, Kenneth, we hung out, he encouraged me to train with him and do a marathon with him. And I said, I don't do marathons, I do Haagen-Dazs. But, <clears throat> but that's, well, it's my passion, okay? Well, the best steak I've ever had was at a restaurant called Del Frisco in New York. I'm not sure if you've been there. If you have never been there, you're going to go take me. The other day, I, uh, my wife is at work, and so it was just me and the little one. And I got a pre-marinated steak from Safeway. Sounds amazing, right? <laughs> it looked good. The price was decent. So I thought, you know what? This would do. So I grilled it for dinner yesterday. Made it medium. Just like how I like my beef. And so I cooked it to the best of my ability, or I grilled it to the best of my ability. 
When it was done, I cut a slice of it, excited to taste the steak. Of course, I let it rest. We all know that, right? I take one bite, and I tasted it, and it tasted just like the Jack Link's peppered beef jerky. It was terrible. It was tender, but it was terrible. I wouldn't even call it steak. It was bad. Obviously, I'm not one who's wasteful, so I still ate it. But I remember giving some to my daughter. And she took a bite, and she said, Mmm. And I was like, Dude, you don't even know. (laughs) What do you mean, mmm? When you've had the best, anything less than the best tastes poor, inadequate, terrible. It makes you long for the time that you had the best. And the reason why, like my daughter, will say, Mm, to the things of the world is because we've never tasted the greatest satisfaction in life. God. And even if you have, if you don't regularly go back to it, you'll soon forget the taste and instead you'll grow a palate for the world. That's the sadness. That's the sad reality. So here, and this is how I end, here's the fight for faith. It's not just steering clear from the sins pointed out here in Scripture, the true fight of faith is walking in step with God and fighting to stay satisfied with God. It's fighting to remain in the Word of God every day. It's fighting to be a part of this church every week. It's it's fighting to be part of the life group community that you're involved in every week. It's fighting to always be prayerful and to meditate on the words of God. And when you do that, you will have tasted something far sweeter far greater than anything else that the world could offer. And once you've tasted the sweetness of God, the world and the things that it offers will soon begin to taste bitter and undesirable. And then only then, this is what Paul is saying, will your spirit overcome the flesh. When you have so much of God that there's no room for the world. Does that make sense? You want so much of God and you have so much of God that there's absolutely no room for the world. So what's on your menu today? What's been on your menu every day? You know, when, when, when we hear challenges of scripture reading and prayer, it's not, we're not just trying to go back to our Sunday school routine of do this because I told you so or anything. no. We have to understand that the word of God and the ability to pray to him, it's our lifeline. Where else are you going to get your source? Where else are you going to get the refreshing that you need? Where else do you think you're going to get the conviction to know what is right and what is wrong? Where else are you going to get that? You get it from God. And how does God communicate to us? He communicates it to us through his word. You're in a battle against flesh and blood. I'm sorry, against flesh and spirit. And he has equipped you with the sword. He has equipped you. And the sword is the word of God. Dig into it, people. There are so many ways to do that. When we're going through hard times in our lives and we, we look up to God and we say, God, where are you? Why weren't you there? 
Why didn't you lead me through this? Why didn't you keep me from pursuing this or going into that terrible relationship or going down that terrible path? God, where were you? We say that, and God's saying, I was there the whole time. I had my answers. Here was my response. You just didn't check. You never invited me into your world. You never invited me into your life. You want to do things your own way, and after so many times of hearing on Sundays or hearing it through life group people or hearing it from people that we trust and know and that we love who walk in faithfulness, and yet we still reject that, well, the choice, you know, the Lord, he's a gentleman. He's not going to force you. I want to encourage you guys, starting tomorrow, starting Monday, if you haven't already done today, it's time to start anew with him. It's time to get back into the word. It's time to commit to a time of prayer where you just rest. Rest in the righteousness of Christ. Say, God, I'm here because of your son, Jesus. Okay, so let's take a few minutes and pray, and we'll go into our last song.